Oshin, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And thanks for inviting me. And it was nice to see you again. Likewise. I'm delighted. I think the last time we met was in... What's the name? Of the... Yeah, no, it was in Berlin. I can't remember the name of the street. It's really long <laughs> one. My German pronunciation is still not good after being here for five years. But it's on Chausseestrasse <laughs> and the coffee shop is 19 okay. grams. That, that's it. Yeah. Cool little place. So tell me, Oshin, and... People can tell already that you're Irish. Tell me about where you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the early 80s in Dublin. I grew up in, in a kind of, I would say, like a council flat area in Dundrum. Bit of a non-traditional Irish family, I would say. When I grew up, my mum was 21 when she had me. I had a, another sister as well, a half-sister at the same time. So like a break, there's about a year and a, three months in between us and then living in Dundrum, also had another half-sister as well, living in the same complex. So two half-sisters, one with the same mother as me, and then one with uh, the same father. So my father was living with right. my mother in the same council estate, and then I had my other sister living in an opposite apartment complex as well. So it was an interesting mm. start, but I grew up pretty poor, I would say. So we, we didn't have any money back in the day, but my mother worked extremely hard, so I would say she was awesome when I was younger. I had a really good childhood. My mum really looked after the family very well. And my dad was doing odd jobs at the time, doing everything from electrician work, selling some stuff he shouldn't have been selling back in the day for yourself. So I grew up with this kind of father. So a bit different than me. My father was about six, four, six, five, and about 18 to 20 stones, but built like me as well. So I had this big figure in my life when I was growing up. And back then, we hadn't got a penny to rub together, so I think most of my clothing came from, I don't know if you're familiar with Fred's Fashion or Oxfam. We used to go to the, yeah, Oxfam, we used yes. to go to the hill when I was younger and on Hill Street. And basically for me, it was amazing because I had these massive piles of clothing that I would climb up and I'd try to find like a Nike or Adidas t-shirt for 20 or 50p. But at least then I could have something cool when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, I think those t-shirts were more valuable than any clothes that I have right now. So they were really important to me back then. But I, I was taught about a lot about hard work back then. So I think my mother instilled in me a, a very strong work ethic. And then, yeah, I then moved to Sandyford and yeah, went to primary school in Sandyford. Spent half my life with my father in Inchicore, and then the other side of my life in Sandyford, my parents split up when I was about five years old. So I was back and forth between the two. And then spent the majority of my life in the early days playing a lot of sports. So my mom was at every game. I did play Gaelic, played hurling, played soccer, did cross country, played basketball. So I had a big, big influence in sports in my life in, in the early days. But there, there, most of my fond memories are around then. And my mum being at, a, at every game, she recorded everything. I still have the old v, VHS uh, tapes from back in like 1995, 96, which is cool to watch now and again. I still have the players at home. I don't know how long that lasts. Hopefully I can convert them into something else in the next while. But yeah, it was a really nice childhood. I think I, I learned a lot mm. when I was younger. And um, but I also had a desire to be successful. I think this was pretty much given to me from my mother. Um, and I, I'd been in a couple of different schools when I was younger, so I'd moved around a good bit. We'd moved a lot of different places, and I was focused so much on sports that I neglected a lot of my studying when I was younger. So it was great to win all these titles, like all Ireland's and Dublin championships and stuff, but I was never in school and I was never in class and I nearly failed my junior cert. So I was at, when I was about 15 or 16, I said, okay, that's enough was enough. I need to do something good. And I switched schools and I moved to a school in Ellsbury Road called St. Michael's. And this was an, an amazing decision I made at the time because it was one of the first decisions I made as a teenager and I took myself out of a situation where I'd learned about a lot about resilience, but I'd moved to a completely different environment where the teachers were different, the pupils were different, and the people I was hanging around with were different. Yeah. Hold that for a second, Oshin. I want to talk a little bit about your decision-making around hmm. that, because for people who are not familiar with Dublin, that's quite a switch-up. Yeah. That's going from a kind of a very working-class area, school, environment to one of the higher end private schools. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah. And, and so that's again, it 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 is a big jump. And you're you you came from a background. You said not a lot of money, so that's a factor. Your your own decision point where you said, look, I almost failed the junior cert, you know, because I was out playing sports the whole time. And and, and I'm curious to, yeah, take me back to just that. What was the moment where you decided, okay, this can't go on. I need to do something else. And then where did the idea of school comes from? Because you had multiple choices. You could have left school and had a job. You could have just knuckled down where you were. So I'm fascinated by the switch up. I would say... Yeah, I, I think w there was a couple of different factors that, that took place in, in my childhood, not to get into it too much, but I think at the time I had a bit of a situation with my biological father where I had a court case to not see him anymore. And my mother right. remarried and she remarried a man who's like very conscientious and he has a lot of integrity. And he's been a big influence in my life, my stepfather, and he was very much big on education. So my mother didn't finish school. She didn't even finish primary school. And, but she was smart. She spoke English, fluent in Irish and French. But he was always pushing me to be better. He had his engineering degree. He also had two masters in engineering from Trinity and UCD. And he knew I was capable of more than just sport. So he was testing me and pushing me a bit more and putting it up to me as well. Because, you know, when you're a teenager and you're growing and you're trying to figure out who you are as a man, he was trying to challenge me on what I'm going to do with the rest of my life at the time. But because he pushed me saying, look, you're not stupid. You have to think about the next three years. What are you going to do? What do you want to plan for your life? And then I actually had a friend that I grew up with when... I was about 12 or 13 and we lost contact, but he went to St. Michael's and I had gone to a different school and he basically, he was like the guy who got all the girls in school. He played the piano, guitar, was a swimmer, was good at rugby and the school was amazing. So I was like, I actually want to be successful. So if I can be in a position to hang out with, with people like this, who care about sports, who care about also academics as well and they're actually doing it on their own that's when i said okay this is enough i don't want to i don't know where my life is going to end up i don't want to end up like my biological father and i don't want to end up wherever i could be and when i said i'm going to take control here and i'm going to decide to go to the best school because they've got the best teachers and they've got the best program and i made the decision to do it yeah got it so you had your friend as a kind of a model you could yep. see his situation, you're going, I want some of that. So you had, a, that, in terms of vision building, I think that was interesting. I wanted to ask you about the, uh, yeah, the, so you, your mother sounds like an extraordinary person because she had it easy no. bringing you guys up pretty much single-handed and dealing with your biological father and so on. And the fact that she saw so much yep. in you and was pushing you. And then your stepfather, was also saw something in you. And I, this is where I'm getting to, is this idea of seeing potential in somebody and being able to extract that. Yeah. How does that experience for you inform or influence your own leadership coaching style? It's, a, it's, it's extremely important for me because I think people overlook just being a little bit kind to people and then encouraging people when they need it as well. So a lot of the times managers just go into a monotonous thing where they just go through the, the motions. They don't talk to people at a personal level. And I find that if you can encourage people and find out what their spark is or what their music is and what they're good at, and you try to elevate them, you can improve their life dramatically and you can change the course of direction of what they're going to do. And then you have a bigger impact. So. Luckily, I had people around me that did it for me. And I think when I work in management now, we're in leadership, I have to try to figure out a way to do that for other people as well. That's something I'm very conscious of when I'm working with people is to try figure out what makes them thick. And then if I can try to build on what they already have, I think that's really important. I've had managers who've done that for me as well. 
Yeah, is there any set pattern to that? Is there any is is there a way of codifying that, or is it something that's innate innate to the coach? Is it is it trainable or teachable? Is what I'm really asking. I think it comes down to it's a very good question. I think it comes down to like active listening and really thinking about the person in front of you and deeply caring about what they're trying to say and putting everything aside and just focusing on them in the moment. The more that you can just really focus on the person, you'll figure out what makes them tick. And if you can put your own thoughts aside and not preempt or give advice too quickly, but really let them speak and really let them, because people are very naturally resourceful, right? They have an idea of how to get there themselves, but you're trying to enable it as much as possible. And sometimes the best coaches that you work with, you won't even know you're being coached. It would just feel like you have a mirror and you're in a bit of a dance and getting there eventually. Like I still use coaches today. I use a professional coach, a personal coach, and I also use a personal trainer. And I think it's very important to keep on your toes and keep coaching. But I think, I don't know if there's a blueprint for it. And I think it's few and far between from managers I've had that can do it well. Like you've gone into situations, I, I don't know if you've had it before, but you feel like you're in a tick box exercise, right? Or someone's trying to use Sandler and they're like, upfront contracts or did I find pain here? What's the technical pains, business pains or how, what keeps you up at night? If it feels like this, there's no authenticity, right? So when someone's authentic and you can feel when someone cares and they're asking, and I think the more authentic the leadership style is, the more you connect with the person, you actually care about what they are trying to achieve, mm. the better the relationship as well. So I think it comes to authenticity. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said something really interesting there about coaching as in you almost, if it's done well, you don't notice yeah. it. And to back up that, you also talked about in the context of selling when it's done well, you shouldn't see it. You shouldn't notice it. And and I know from the sales side of things to, to teach somebody to do that can take many months and sometimes even years of consistent reinforcement and practice. And of course, you get two days if you're lucky in most companies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, of which you remember very yeah, yeah. little, which is a whole other topic in itself. I don't want to go there. I'll really, it's the coaching side because, again, coaching can often feel like an event yeah. where somebody says, okay, let's sit down now for 45 minutes and I'm going to coach you. And what you're saying is, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that has its place, but for the most part is that it should just happen like the breeze, it should just flow in and flow Yeah, out. for me, it's more natural, right? You should be coaching all the time. It's not that I need to, you know, you have your one-to-ones or your block sessions for coaching, but I think it's just, it's about having, coach. it's a, like a coaching habit. There's some books on this, that you have mm. to develop a coaching habit. You're constantly coaching people. I think that's the most important thing to do. Yeah. And just be authentic, be yourself and try to connect with people well. And then they feel it. They feel the difference when you're authentic and they can tell when you're sincere and when you're trying to help them it comes across pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking authenticity with a little bit of tact. Because yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes if you're truly authentic, you just want to strangle oh, somebody yeah. and you have to hold back a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard um, that as well. To- yeah, take me from then St. Michael's, you did your leaving cert to how you ended up in Germany. That's a bit of a gap. Of, I know, that's a journey. It's a big gap now because I'm nearly 40. Yeah. I had my 20 year uh, leaving cert anniversary last week. So, yeah. So, I always, like, so to, back to, to go back to the hard work, I, I worked a lot as I was, when I was a kid. I sold roses with my mum in pubs. I, Worked the odd job here and there, pubs, car garage, cleaning. Like I worked in a hospital every weekend, Leopardstown Park Hospital as a cleaner for about six years. And actually the thing that, that is a bit random about it is when I finished university, I worked in a bank and I was doing data entry in Bank of Ireland. So filling mm. out Excel files, making them pink, making them purple, making them yellow. And then I was doing it so much that I was working at least 24 hours a day because when I went to sleep, I would see the Excel file again, yeah? And I was working part-time on the weekends in the hospital cleaning. So for about a year, I was working seven days a week. And then I kept up the part-time job because there was no, um, there was no jobs in Ireland at the time. 
And then we had this little bit of a dip in a recession in 2008 and 2010. Yeah. And they came to me and said, I think it was in 2010, I was working in the public sector for the hospital and they said, oh, do you want to take voluntary redundancy? So here's your 10 or 15 mm. grand to leave. And I was like, good luck, I'll take it. And I was thinking, I was in between two different places at the time. I was thinking about New York and San Francisco. And I was going to go to New York, but then I called one of my friends that I went to, that I was in school with. And I was like, any chance I can stay on your couch? I would like to go to San Francisco. And he was like, yeah, come stay, stay on the couch, help you find the job. Back in 2010, took the redundancy, had my little base of money to get set up in San Francisco, moved over. And then he'd already networked a bit. So I met a bunch of Australians, New Zealanders, Irish guys, Americans, and then got introduced to a recruitment firm and then had a job within about two weeks in downtown San Francisco. And yeah, basically, yeah, Irish guy at the time, very introverted, had no idea about technology, like nothing. I think they just about understood what an iPhone was doing back then. Everybody actually had Blackberries at the time. The iPhone wasn't really out so much. And started at an agency doing tech recruiting for a big consultancy, but we were placing people that were making from 100K to 350K. And I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Yeah. A lot of the times I'll try to coach people that are much younger than me because I've been working in this for a long time and they'll be like, oh, you don't understand. And I'm like, I do understand because I remember getting these job specs for solution architects or SAP consultants or FICO consultants or whatever, and just being like, look, I remember being on the 18th floor of the building and looking out at the other skyscrapers and then looking back at the phone and saying, I was afraid of picking up the phone. I didn't want to talk on the phone. I didn't want to make a fool of myself. I didn't want anyone to hear me speaking. I didn't want to call this guy who's making 250K and try to pitch him a job because I have no clue what a solution architect does. I'm going to sound like an idiot, but I had to figure out a way. And it was, at the time, it seemed like a huge challenge and I was super afraid. But I think that's just, not everything's perfect, right? So you've got to make a lot of mistakes in the beginning. And this was like a, not, and if I say it to the guys like Wolf of Wall Street style, but it was a, it was an agency. So it was like, 150 mm. calls a day. You're working from eight in the morning till eight at night. Your boss is opening a bar tab downstairs until 10 o'clock. So you're literally, I was making 25 or 30K living in San Francisco. That's San Francisco. You might as well be making like five euro basically. But I had to like, yeah. for me, I had to, okay, I have to figure out a way to survive. And I have to listen in to other people, understand their pitches try to figure out my own pitch. And eventually I got over the anxiety of picking up the phone and talking to people. And I think the best thing is I talked to a senior guy one time. He was like, let's cut the crap. You have no clue what you're doing, do you? And I was like, no, I have no clue. And he was like, all right, I know you're starting out in the job. I'll explain everything to you. Like, this is the position. He basically went through the resume, the technology. He's like, this is how you pitch it. He just explained everything to me. It was super nice for someone so senior to just say, I understand. Mm. And then I worked there for a year, was super successful in the position. I got sponsored and to stay for four years so I could stay in San Francisco for another four years. They bumped up my salary by 10 or 20 K so I could at least start to make a bit more money. And, but then my father got sick. My biological father got sick and I had to move back to Ireland. So I, yeah, so from the early days when he'd been more, he'd abused a lot of drugs, he picked up hepatitis. So he had a lot of problems with his liver and then he got, he got cancer of the liver as well. So he was hiding the fact that he was sick from me as well. So for a while I didn't know he had cancer. He didn't want to tell me because he was afraid because I just moved to San Francisco, just got a job, didn't know when people are dying. They don't want to believe they're dying, so they don't want to tell you. And eventually my mom was like, you have to tell him because I know. And if he finds out that I knew, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. I then decided to come home and within, I think, from when I landed and came home in November 2011, within two weeks he had died um, from coming back. 
But the great thing about the situation was I got to spend like the last few minutes with him and I got to come back and I got, he basically saw me come into the world and I got to see him leave, which was amazing experience to, to be able to do that. And then it was a good decision because I got to come home. Um, and I think yeah. if I hadn't have made the decision to come home and he passed away, if I said that, if I hadn't really realized what was going on and, and left it for two weeks, it would have been a disaster. So I came back yeah. and then I had a friend that was working in Salesforce in Dublin and gave him my CV. Now, the backdrop to this was like Salesforce was exploding in San Francisco at the time. 2011, 2010, it was quite big. Now, obviously, it's much, much bigger 12, 13 years later. And for me, it was like hard to explain. It's this, could you imagine you want to play for the best football team or you want to get into the best university? For me, when I was trying to get a job there, I, this was like, oh, I'm going to get in here. This is going to be a logo. This is going to be something on my CV and it's a great company. And I was interviewed by Julie Kinsel at the time. So she was the director of sales development. I think she's in Intercom now. She saw potential in me, even though I did well in the interview process, but I messed up a certain part, but she was like, I'm going to hire him anyway. And then mm. I, this company at the time, like for me, it was my sales university. I had the best training I've ever had. Like we had the guru doing Sander Ganesh. Mm. And I had John Barrow's training bootcamp for three or four days. I had so many mentors. So like really good culture, really open people, super competitive, great marketing, great partner infrastructure, awesome managers. And it was just an environment for me to thrive in. I've always been super competitive because I've played a lot of sports, but I did so many positions in Salesforce. I started as an inbound SDR, excelled at that, then did outbound. So what inbound was great was like you learn how to qualify. You get people that are interested, but then you try to figure out how do you navigate the conversation, what piqued their interest, how to basically qualify enough then to pass them on to an account executive just so that they can continue to sell. But you have to understand the product. So what Salesforce was amazing at is they give you all the product knowledge, but then driving the value from the product is more important, right? So you really understood what value it drives for different companies whether it's the, what part of the product or the persona that you're selling to. And then I moved into the business development rep position, which is like the outbound position. And this was much harder, right, at the time. Completely different skill set. You're given a territory, you have to come up with the messaging, you have to figure out what's happening in the industry right now, what are the challenges, what personas am I going to target, how do I figure out a territory plan with my account executive, but it's a blank canvas. So if you're super skilled and creative, and it was back in the day when there wasn't much social selling, there wasn't much, uh, like there wasn't these outreach tools, there was no AI, there was no one split testing. It was like, okay, I'm gonna try this with this persona. I'm gonna use this subject line. I'm gonna put this call to action. I'm gonna try this video. And you had to play around with it. You had to listen to everyone else and you had to collaborate a lot more. So it was a lot of fun. but. The two, the combination of learning how to qualify and then building out a territory plan and understanding messaging, when you became an account executive, you'd, you'd compete against other account executives who'd never done the two inbound and outbound aspects of SDR. And then the SDRs were killing the other AEs because they were more aggressive and there was, they, they understood how to qualify better. And that for me was just awesome. I did pretty much everything, but mm. then I became a team lead in the SDR position. And I think it, it brought up for me, like a lot of the stuff around trying to help people. And I realized that making money was cool. I enjoyed it. Being successful was cool, but I also, I started to gravitate back towards wanting to help people and wanting to coach people and then helping with people on board. And also if people were on pips or plans or not doing well. I always tried to help out. Um, but the problem is, I think, and I noticed when I was younger, and when I look back, I just think, Jesus, this guy's an arrogant little shit, basically. And 
it created a bit of a mini monster because they're training you, they're developing you, they they're want you to be successful. So you're pushing the envelope a lot. And when I look back at myself, I push myself to go, I'd never really planned anything until I got to Salesforce. Everything has just happened. Mm. But in Salesforce, it's like, what are you doing now? Because when you get into Sandler, when you start to qualify under Sandler, which was obviously what we did, you're like asking about the vision for the next few years, right? So then you become a rep and you're like, what am I going to do in the next year? What am I going to do in the next two years? When am I going to become a manager? So you create like these mini monsters, basically. And you're a little bit jumped up and a little bit aggressive and a little bit not so nice. And I, I like it was an environment for me because I was a bit of a loner and I was like very focused on success that it, it made me... It, exacerbated that side of me in the beginning. But then, then I had to reset and look at myself and say, okay, this can only get you so far. So I did this for three years. Then I moved to an enterprise AE position in uh, Oracle. Now at the time, Oracle were trying to become more innovative. They bought, I was working for their marketing automation side of the business and they bought a different, a bunch of different systems like Blue Kai, Eloqua, stuff like this, but they never integrated them into mm. the culture. It was very, we had 10 people working on the same deal or... What year was that? Oh, 2014, maybe. Okay, okay. Might have been just up when I was finishing yeah. up in there. I don't think I came across you in there. No, I don't think so. I don't remember you. <laughs> Then, luckily, I worked with the director of sales development in, in Salesforce, Corson Hardman, and he had just taken a position with Zendesk. And, um, yes, top man. He, I, like, I nailed, if I go back to San Francisco and I think about when I got this orig original recruitment job, it was fake it till you make it. So now I had this mm. manager position mm. and it was fake it till you make it. Like I read... I'm, I'm an over-prepper, so I read, I don't know, 10 management books and watched multiple videos on YouTube. So basically, I was like an actor going in to the interview. I'd done all my research with all the people that were interviewing me. I found out that one of the guys played rugby with another guy in, in Wales, in basically in university, and then all, did all my research to the point where they were like, okay, we're definitely hiring this guy. But when I look back, I was like, mm. I was definitely not ready for leadership. And basically at the time, I was a single contributor mm. who was focused on themselves and never managed anyone. And mm. a lot of the stuff I've done was out of, was fear motivated, right? So it was never, like, I, it was more bravado and arrogance, but underlying fear. There was no, it wasn't natural. Yeah. So when I came in as a first line manager, I made a lot of mistakes in the first two or three years in leadership. Didn't really understand how to set boundaries with people, always wanted to be liked, and competed against other people in leadership, which was, looking back, this is so stupid. And then I had to learn the hard mm. way. And it wasn't like I had a mentor who said, you need to do this and this. It was no like blueprint or I was told. And when you're used to working as a salesperson, they're a little bit aggressive, they're pushy back then. And then mm. you think this gets you somewhere. But when you get into management, it, you have an extended team and you're there to help each other and support each other and learn from each other. There's competitiveness, but it's healthy. Yeah. And for me at the time, I wasn't politically smart and I wasn't very, I'd say I was a bit, an, a bit of an annoyance. But when I look back, I, I think it was important to learn this for me. And then mm. it made me think, okay, I need to be more authentic. I need to actually help my leadership team and it, it was a big learning curve because now anytime I have a new leader or a new manager or co-workers, I'm becoming way more collaborative than I've ever been before. So if I'm working with another manager or another VP or with marketing or with customer service or support, I'm more like, I, what what shared goals do we have and how can we help each other, right? So this is the biggest learning curve for me. And I think the more... I started in management about eight, nine years ago now. So over the last, I've relaxed a lot over the last nine years. I've gotten older and, and I've, gotten more, I've gotten more closer to who I actually am as a person. And I've chilled out a little bit, probably a lot. Because I've managed a lot of young teams mm. and you need a lot of patience to do, do this position. Mm. And I think 
after my initial, I did another position where I was managing account executives as well. So that was a, a different ball game. But you realize when you're managing SDRs or account executives, or they all complain all the time. Everybody complains all the time. It doesn't matter if they're 21, 35, 40, everyone's complaining all the time. So you need to be a little bit more relaxed and open to, to listen to people a lot more. What are they complaining about? I tell you, everything and anything I'm saying. I've been, I, I tell you, I've been in one, like I've seen the amount of stuff I've seen working in tech over the last, I've seen people cry. I've seen people screaming at each other. I've seen fights. I've seen panic attacks. I've seen people have breakdowns in meetings. I've seen everything over the last 15 years. I think people just didn't, I think sometimes they come into one-to-ones and stuff and they just complain they want to vent. It's just natural. Mm. And complaining mm. that I think nowadays, I, I feel like the complaining has got a little, maybe I'm sounding old now, but I feel like the complaining has gotten a bit worse over the years. People are, like I, I've mm. interviewed people that have six months experience and they're like, I want to leave the department in six yeah. months and you're like, Scott, yeah, right. <laughs> takes a bit of time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think you're alone in that. I, I know a teacher, a principal of a primary school who said it has changed, it's gotten worse. Uh, but I also think there's something else. And, and I think it's, I won't say it's unique to sales, but you see it a lot in sales because sales is a very not okay place. Essentially, you're going in every day to fail. Uh, so much of the job, whether somebody balls you out on the phone or you don't reach them or you don't make quota, at a macro level, you, you may fail a lot. At a micro level, when you're trying to reach somebody and you're constantly getting blocked by gatekeepers and you're failing and failing, that that can get in on you. And I know good companies like to recognize, but not, they're not recognizing the person. They're recognizing what they do yeah. and what they achieve. And so therefore, I think a lot of complaining is really more about hear me, see me, that they're looking, if you, I don't know if you, I don't think you have children. No, no. Do you have young, you don't have kids. Yeah, okay. Then you, if you have young children, I noticed this with, with mine and I've seen it elsewhere, is that if you're praising one of them, the others start to act up because they don't know how to ask for the praise. Mm -hmm. So they're just looking to get noticed. And so one of the easiest ways to get noticed is to act up or to complain. And so you do see that a lot in sales where people will come and, it's not about the complaint. It's not, that's not the yeah. real issue. The real issue is somewhere else. It's more of a kind of a, they're feeling that they're not getting attention or they're not getting enough yeah, recognition at some human level, not money rewards, but human rewards as in, I want to feel significant. I want to feel seen and yeah. heard. And it's easy in a sales environment to miss that. To be fair, 100% agree with what you're saying. And I think in this environment, it's gotten a little bit magnified, right? Because like you could, I've worked in like enterprise sales, which like you, you, you work over three months, six months, right? And then you, to a year and then someone's successful. But then in this current environment, it's like, what did you do today? You're doing check-ins in the morning, checkouts in the evening, weekly, monthly. And it's like the people, it's like people are being benchmarked against each other daily. So it doesn't even matter what you did with yesterday. So for them, they, I'd say at the moment, they feel like they don't, the ground is going to feel way more unstable. And that's what I see in the market at the moment. You've seen or like a kind of gravitation towards micromanagement again, where people are like, how many dials, how many emails, how many touch points, what did you do today? And why was it successful today? And what did you do differently today? And sometimes I'm like, as a leader, for me, that's a little bit difficult. I've done it. But you put someone in that spin every day, they're never going to feel like they're good enough. Because they have one good day. You're going to have good days and bad days. But if you're constantly measuring them every day, yeah, fine. Mm. It's, for example, I can go and play basketball. I can train. I can dribble. I can shoot. I can practice everything. There might be some days where I play very well. And some days where I don't play so well. But analyzing why I played well on one day and the other, you might not actually get any information of why. But sometimes if you leave me alone mm. and let me play, I might play better. 
So sometimes you need to also take the foot off and let people play. Encourage them to be themselves and actually work and not put so much pressure on. And then you might get people who are more resilient and they want to work for you. So that's where I try yeah. to, as much as possible, I, like if people are doing well, I try to, because you go into these feedback mm. sessions and you always point out how oh, you did this wrong, but you didn't do that. And this was the situation. Here's the behavior. Here's the impact. Or you have the old shit sandwich or whatever. But I think it's better if you're constantly pointing out what people did well as yes. they're doing it well, then they f you're, it's your job as a, as a leader to make them feel safe in the environment. Yeah. Mm. So you need to call out when people mm. are doing good things and not just not poke around when they're doing bad things. But I've seen it, I think, in this environment yeah. because in the last two years there's been a big shift. There was a lot of money, a lot of investment. Now it's all about trying to become as profitable as possible with as, as lean as yeah. possible. And then there's a lot of pressure on people. Yeah, it's interesting. I've noticed that too, as the economy slows down and obviously deal cycles are going to naturally elongate because decisions yeah. take longer to make. The management cadence gets tighter and tighter. I was out with the head of sales for the company the other night for dinner and he was telling me that they're, they have an end of quarter every month now. That the, it's just unrelenting, the focus. And you're right. I think you do need to step back. I'll never forget. It was actually Dave Matson, who's the CEO of Sander. He was he worked directly with David Sander, and he had this expression around. And it was around coaching and leadership that it was his job, to, and I'll never forget this, was to give permission, potency, and protection. You mentioned the safe Morning. place, which is what kind of put it into my head. So protection, like you you could say anything in here. Potency is empowerment, and then the permission. Permission to fail. Yeah. And and I thought though, that that triangle or that triumvirate was uh, is it's a very powerful mix. And I think if we if you're micromanaging what you're saying is I don't trust yeah, you. Yeah, and if you give them the option to fail, then they're gonna try different things and be a bit more courageous in the way they work. You might get something special yeah. out of somebody if they don't feel. That's what I mean. If you go back to trying to figure out what makes them tick or what basically what kind of music or what talent they have inside, if you allow them to express that talent, as opposed to squeeze them, if you squeeze yeah. them. It's, it's not going to work. If you squeeze someone too hard, you're just going to get nothing back. Tell me, Oshin, if you could no longer work, as, as in you had to stop work, uh, you're financially independent, 10 million in the bank, what would you do with your life? Uh, oh, you would definitely just try to help people as much as possible. I think I would do as much charity work as I could. I grew up in a very, like, I had a, like, a, I think, growing up with my life, I, my background's probably, I had a very difficult childhood, so for me, I try to work with as many kids as possible, and I think that would bring me a lot of fulfillment if I could have an impact on kids that have been victims of any sort of abuse in, in the past. I would definitely do that. That would bring, yeah. There'd be more reward in helping one kid than have any money for me personally. So I think mm. I would do a good bit of charity work. I'd probably do some consulting for free with some startups, with younger people, with younger ideas. Mm. And I'd spend my time trying to help as much people as possible. And yeah, I think that would be basically it. Help people invest in startups okay. and then for me, on a personal level, I'd probably just probably try to chill as much as possible, eat healthy, go to the gym, mm. travel a bit, get to see the world. Yeah, mm. that would be it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you earlier, and it was when you were talking about going to San Francisco, and I had the sense of you had spent all your life to that point in Dublin, essentially, working really hard, and then you go to San Francisco, which is from there is the far side of the world, essentially, and a very different culture, very different vibe. How did that change you as a person? Um, good question. I think for me, it was trying to, uh, trying to be in like this completely different environment and, and survive in, in a completely different setting. So it was a very, 
big point in my life for growing up. My first time that I had to have my own place, pay my own bills, look after myself, interact with different people. And then culturally, just huge shock, right? And Irish people, like back then, like I had a very stupid sense of humor and was completely different than Americans. And it was so different, but I learned so much in terms of like how to look after myself properly how to network well with people, how to build a friends network in a new country. And I think it was just, for me, it was the making of myself because I was completely like a fish out of water. I had no clue how to do anything, but luckily I had some really good friends that were very supportive at the time. I surrounded myself, but with some really good people. And then I was lucky that I met some really nice people. Like one of the, one of the guys at the time, um, I met through the Olympic uh, rugby club, a guy called Ono Tool, who's a, he's a professional headhunter. He probably has his own company at this stage. I think he lives now in, in San Diego, but he got me my first job as a recruiter. So it was just so different. Um, and the thing is, but, um, I used to be super extroverted as a kid. But then I flipped to introvert again when I went through a lot of stuff with, with my father when I was a teenager. But San Francisco brought me back to more my outgoing style because I, ha I had to talk to people, you know. I had to be in a new city. I had to go out. I had to network. I had to meet people. I had to put myself out there. And it was the first time where I was like, I have to rely on myself. I didn't mm. have the cushion of my parents, I didn't have my friends around. I didn't have anything to fall back on. It really taught me about resilience and then setting up a good foundation of how to look after yourself and how to network and how to be around people. And also it was really cool to experience yeah. new technologies and be in a very vibrant city with, like I live in Greystones in Wicklow. So it's just on the, on the water. And I'm not used to a big city with skyscrapers and lots of Americans and just craziness going on. So it was like so different from me. And then interacting with people, yeah. I remember um, I even softened my accent a lot. So a lot of people in Germany, for some reason, they think I'm American or they think I'm from a different part because I have a bit of a softer Irish accent, but because I've worked with lots of... Yeah, I, I've had yeah. that too. I've had that too. I know, I know where yeah. you're coming so from. So I've tried yeah. to adapt to the environment I've been in, but it was, it was I'd say it was the making of me moving over there. And it, yeah. my advice for any... I also think probably you're... Sorry, I was going to say, I also think you're, when you change schools like that, you probably didn't see it as preparation at the time, but really was because when you move to a new school, particularly a very different school, you, it is a sink or swim and you, and you have to step out. They're not going to step out for you. You have to make the effort. You have to make new friends yep. and you have to fit in. And that's non-trivial. Not everybody has, has the ability. You often notice that, particularly with like I, I'm not with comedians, people, public personas, who who are very quick at say building rapport and getting people to be at ease and and laugh. And you look at their backgrounds, you'll often see that where they move school you around, know, uh, uh, moved around school, I should say, a lot, and and that conditioned them to be able to fit in really quickly. And then I guess San Francisco was that on steroids because. It's, not your average. And it's be, about being proactive. But I think a lot of people feel, mm. especially these days, like they, things should just come to them. Like I even, I've seen with people like, oh, I applied for this job. Why haven't they responded to me? And I'm like, you, yeah. you they're the hiring manager yet. Yeah? They've got like 150 applicants. You yeah. want the job. So why aren't you being proactive? Like, why haven't yeah. you created a video content? Or why haven't you tried to get in touch with somebody for a coffee meeting or why haven't you been proactive to get to know the internal structure of the company so that you have yeah. a name for yourself like you yeah. want something you need to get it no one's going to give it to you yeah so yeah. there was a great meme that was going around years ago and it was just a blank piece of paper on the top of it was something like everything the world owes yeah, you exactly. i thought that's very no, good so but... i think that's it i think i have two there's for me it's about one of the things that I, I realized over managing for a long uh, time is I used to be very unself-aware. And I know this is a bit of a buzzword, like self-awareness and empathy and all that sort of stuff. But I was very unaware of the way I was behaving. And two different, two, like just two different quotes that, that kind of hit me. One is from Marcus Aurelius, and it's basically, your happiness is dictated by the quality of your thoughts. But then 
how do you actually focus on those thoughts, right? So there's another guy that I follow a lot when I was younger called Wayne Dyer, and he's basically saying, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. So mm -hmm. it's mm. really important for you whether you have, if you're in a situation where you don't want to give up or something's challenging or something's really testing you in life, it's there for a reason. And you have to actually figure out a way to look at it in a positive light in order to be successful. Even if it's a negative situation, you're going to learn something. And for me, that, yeah. that goes back to the quality of your thoughts. And when you're working in tech and it's pressure, a million calls a day, managing things coming in left and center, your ability to manage those thoughts and will impact the quality of your ability to work, will impact the way you work yeah. with others, and it will anchor you a lot more if you can get self-aware. Oh, I'm stressed. Why? What's happening right now? How can I change yeah. it? That's been the biggest thing for me to learn over the last few years. Yeah, and it is a skill. It's not just something that comes to you. You have to be aware of what's happening. Honestly. There was another quote that I heard recently, and I thought, oh, it just that just captures it so well. It was the said, the secret... I don't know. I don't know if they prefaced it with the secret to success or any of that nonsense, but it was, it said, life is not about the pursuit of happiness, but the happiness of pursuit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I really like that. It's if you're happy when, when you go after things and you have to work hard and climb hills and then succeed. Yeah, it's about the journey, right? And if, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm conscious of time, Oshina, and I have just three questions that I wanted to. Actually, the first one was this. If you were to write a book, what would you write? What would you write about? <laughs> oh, wow, that's a good question. I'm not going to write about Tiernan and Owen because that's already been done, right? Let me think. I kind of be like not. I've been influenced a little bit, like by, by like these kind of life journey books or self help mm. books. But I've been to Tony Robbins a few times and I've gone to seminars where you walk over coal and all that sort of stuff so i would probably write something around something around meditation or zen or coaching i would say it'd be some sort of coaching book or something to do with trying to find purpose in life i think that's what i would write about if i was to write a book yeah. okay interesting if you are were to go to be a marooned on a desert island and you don't know if you're ever going to be rescued again there's no satellite, there's no mobile phone signal, and you can only take one item. It can't be a person. What would you take? Can I take two items that work together? Okay. Um, I okay. would basically put a basketball court island. Okay. <laughs> because for me, it's I always loved playing basketball since I've, I've been playing basketball for 30 years, and it's like a form of meditation yeah. for me. So I can go out, I can shoot, I yeah. can relax. And if I had that to play every day, I'd be pretty happy. Yet. Yeah. It's an interesting one, actually, as a sport. It's one where you can amuse yourself endlessly for hours. You don't need to play against other people just to amuse yeah, to exactly, practice yeah. and amuse yourself. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, two final questions. Your house is burning down. Uh, your wife, pets, anything like whatever. They're yeah. safe. And phone, computer, all okay. safe. And you have time to run back in and rescue one item. What would it be? I'd have to grab my Gucci bag. I'm, I'm just joking. I don't have one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say you were doing so no, well. No, no, no. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'd probably take, I have, I still have my dad's key ring from when he was a taxi driver that says dad's taxi. I would take this. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Lovely. That's a good one. Yeah. Because there is that, there's that song from, oh, I, I think it was Ivor and Demo and Ivor. Yeah, if yeah, you remember yeah. that yeah. series. And he was saying it. If it's not Gucci, I'm not wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to try and find that and insert it at no, this no, point. No. I don't know. I don't have any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. No, no. And last question: When your time on this planet is done, and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Twelve. Trying to give me existential crisis before we we finish up, or title <laughs> my book. That's not the title no, now, no. right? Existential crisis. <laughs> it could be. Harmless. Another way to look at it, Oshin, is how would you like to be remembered? Yeah, look, I think I'll, 
it was never perfect, but I would say I would like to be remembered with someone who cared about people and tried to have an impact on their life. It was a nice guy who really cared for the people that he was surrounded by and they tried to have an impact on people and was not so much focused on themselves. I think for me, the, the thing is what I've realized over the last couple of years is I had a, I had some stuff happen in my life and then I had to course correct. So like from now it's, I want to be able to bump into people over that, build a big network of where I've impacted people's lives in a positive way and say, okay, he, he helped me with something. So it's all about the impact and mm. the personal connection. And mm. I, I feel like as humans now, like with AI and with different technologies, we're, they're great tools and everything, but we've started to move a little bit apart from each other, especially after Corona and all this online stuff. I'd rather be, I'm more focused on being connected and building culture with people and having a mm. tribe of people that I'm surrounded by. So if I was to be remembered by, it'd be like he impacted my life in a positive way and was, mm. and cared for me, even though he might've challenged me now and mm. again and made it difficult for me, but he actually had my interests at heart. Mm. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of people could have let your background, your start in life define them. You didn't, you let it refine you, not define yeah. you. And that's and important. Uh, yeah. That's I think for a lot of people as well, that's yeah. one thing is like never give up. Even you might be in a very difficult situation and you might think it's not going to pass and it might be extremely like you don't know how to get out of it, but just keep going and don't give up and you'll eventually get to the other side and say, actually, that was the making yeah. of me. I learned something here and without that, I wouldn't be the person I am today. So I think it's mm. really important to, yeah. to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And what was in, what was clear to me from your story was ask, don't try to do it alone. Yeah. Surround yourself. People will help, but you've got to put, you've got to go out and ask, which is uncomfortable. But yeah, if you do that, people will respond. You'd be kind. surprised who will get back to you. I asked someone on your podcast yesterday on LinkedIn who'd been on your podcast before, what would you recommend talking about? And he responded to me in five minutes. Interesting. So if you ask people, they, they usually will, will help you. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Oshin Connell, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been an absolute joy to have you. It's great to talk to you. I really appreciate you having me on. So yeah, thank you so much.